I'm Michael Hainsworth. Canada's cherished healthcare system is failing. That's the assessment of Queen's University Stoffer Dunning Fellow Don Drummond and the university's Professor Emeritus Duncan Sinclair. They write that when it comes to universality and portability, we're doing fairly well. But Canadians assume we've got the best healthcare system in the world because we only compare ourselves to the Americans. In a two-part intelligence memo, the pair discuss why the Canada Health Act is failing against its five famous principles and what to do about it. We began our conversation with Drummond pointing out that the name Canada Health Act itself is misnamed. He says that ensuring good health plays a very quiet second fiddle. It doesn't read like he's being pedantic. It reads like an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, taken literally. If we go back in history, right, all the way back to Tommy Douglas and look at the speeches that he gave at that time that led to the creation of what we have today. We would provide health care for every man, woman and child, irrespective of their color, their race or their financial status. And by God, we're going to do it. He had two equal parts, but he first talked about the promotion of health and the concept was to have healthy people. And he also spoke of when you fall into ill health, you've got to patch people up and get them going again. And we, we latched on to the second part reasonably well. If you have some kind of problem, a broken arm or have an infection, we deal with that fairly well. But we pretty much neglected the first part. I think the timing may in part explain that. Uh, in 1960, uh, only 7.6% of Canadians were 65 plus. And longevity actually wasn't that much longer than 65 plus. So you didn't have a large cohort of older people who may have chronic conditions. But if you fast forward today, we've got over one sixth of the population 65 plus. We are heading to one quarter of the population 65 plus, And we're going to have a doubling of the 75 plus population in 20 years. So the conditions have completely changed. But the change in the so-called system have been incremental and marginal at best. One kind of suspects if we were starting all over again from a blank piece of paper, everything would look completely different, but we've not changed everything in response to what is really highly predictable. As soon as the baby boomers started to be born, we, we could tell with great accuracy this was going to happen. But you have this paradox that's the most predictable of public Duncan, policies, but the one that the least planning has been applied to. When you uh, dissect it right down to its basic, what's the major objective is to have the healthiest population in the world. We're a highly developed country. We've got every reason to have the most healthy population in the world. But paradoxically, we don't even measure the health of the population per se, except by the definition of equating health with the absence of disease. Don refers to longevity. Um, living a long time, if you're miserable, is not really very good. We, we need to assess the degree of health in our elderly population, and we don't do it. And Duncan, you state as an example of a primary breadwinner ending up in the hospital with tooth abscess sepsis because they can't afford to pay privately for a dentist or for the antibiotics. If we take this prevention-focused track... Do we understand the lifetime cost difference between paying for someone's dental care versus a hospital bed for a sepsis patient? Is preventative care more or less expensive than reactionary care? Well, uh, in general speaking, uh, prevention is much more uh, cost effective than is treatment. Uh, treatment's a very intensive, high-tech, generally speaking, uh, costly endeavor 
Whereas prevention really, as is, has been demonstrated very many times, including by the Canadian Senate, and, uh, which showed that about 75% of the health of the population is attributable to uh, uh, sources of assistance and support that are not medical per se. That's not to say that medical care isn't important. It is important. Of course it's important. But uh, let's, uh, let's, we have given it much more emphasis uh, than, in fact, we have given to the much less expensive preventive issues that would optimize the health of the Canadian population. Michael, I think there's a difference in the timing of the spending, though, not as much the, the amount. Yeah. Promoting health ultimately is less expensive but the cost typically occurs earlier. And I think that causes a problem on the political side. You typically are looking at the next two, three, and four years because those tend to be our, our political cycles. So if we broaden out the concept somewhat, I mean, virtually every study that's been done in the world says somewhere between 40 and 50% of your health outcomes are determined by social economic factors, not even by healthcare or hospitals. Income, housing, education, they're all linked. So you can, with a fair degree of accuracy, predict today who is going to cost a lot in the healthcare system in 20 or 30 years. It would be a young child living in poverty. And they're disproportionately First Nations, recent immigrants. And if you wanted to address that, and why wouldn't you want to address that, you would put an investment in their income support, housing support, better education for those people, and they would be healthier and cost less. But that's would appear on the government ledger in the most cold-hearted of terms as a negative for quite some time because that person you can when you're young you're pretty resilient and you can go for a while without these health problems showing up but by the time the person's getting along then diabetes starts to creep in all kinds of chronic problems start to creep in and then it gets very very expensive then in some sense it's kind of too late to have focused on on the outcomes but it takes something forward looking just as it would have to deal with this pending doubling of the 75 plus population. We should have dealt with that and put the funding in place and the institutions in place for that a long time ago. Duncan, you argue that the Health Canada Act fails the smell test against its five key principles? I do. How so? Particular, well, its most uh, glaring failure is in the fact that it is not comprehensive, which it's advertised to be. And the comprehensiveness uh, is seriously deficient when it comes to go back to that example of the uh, sepsis resulting from an abscessed tooth. If a person does not have access to uh, the care necessary to deal with that abscessed tooth, uh, it uh, uh, the cost goes up like crazy, and uh, and. Um, uh, the individual uh, may suffer death uh, rather than the prevention thing. It, uh, it, it's also rehabilitation post uh, an injury. Uh, most of that is paid for, has to be paid for out of uh, the direct cost to physiotherapists and other therapists. Around. Mental health is another area where, in fact, the, uh, the services are just not available. In fact, they were large, have been largely excluded. Apart from in-hospital and psychiatric care, 
uh, right from the outset of uh, of Medicare. And uh, so th- th- there are other problems, uh, and I'm glossing over the issue that we, uh, Don used the term so-called system, uh, which, with which I agree. I mean, the idea of public administration applies only to the insurance aspects. It does not apply to the management of a system. In fact, our system is not managed. In fact, I would argue that the system, as dictionary definition requires, just doesn't exist. Well, then on the topic of management, has leaving the cost of the organization and running of healthcare services to the individual provinces been a mistake? Well, I don't think I would define it as a mistake. I mean, the fact the constitutional uh, responsibilities were decided many years ago, and it's just a simple fact that in Canada we have delegated to the provinces and territories the responsibility for the provision of health services. I would argue uh, that, in fact, that's not absolutely uh, accurate. We have delegated to the provinces health care services, but not health services, and there's a vast difference. Yeah, I don't think the federal government necessarily helped it. In 2006, they started a 10-year period where they increased the Canada health transfer by 6% a year, but no conditions got attached to it. The intention had been to attach conditions, but if you look back on that 10-year period, it's very hard to identify any tangible improvements that got made. We did not expand coverage of the Canada Health Act. We did not improve access to it. We didn't seem to improve any procedures. And while we don't know the measurement, it doesn't seem that we improved health outcomes. So that didn't do any better. I think a lot of it comes back to we, we have a relatively complacent public uh, they seem to think we have a great healthcare system. They definitely think we have a public healthcare system, but only 70% of it's public. That's one of the lowest ratios. If you take aside the United States, that's definitely at the low end. And, and it is a unique structure in which almost all primary care is in the public domain, but only 46% of pharmaceuticals and less than 10% of everything else. And that includes what Duncan was talking about of mental health. Mental health is only covered in the public domain if you're being serviced in the hospital, if you're not. You're on, you're on your own. And we've had various surveys on pharmaceutical use, and they typically throw up somewhere between 8 and 15% of Canadians do not take their prescription or don't take them as prescribed due to a financial constraint. And I don't think that's the, the healthcare system that Canadians think we have, but that's what we have. And we fall back into the usual trap where we uniquely compare ourselves to the Americans. And most Canadians like what we have better in the United States without realizing there are other models around the world where do various aspects a lot better than they do of Canada. They might not have 100% coverage, but they'll have private insurance or a public insurance plan that will complement uh, those kind of holes that they have. And they don't have. We're unprecedented in our wait times and our wait times for specialists are off the map of any other developed country around the world, but we grumble about it, but not that much. So then who should we be turning to? Which country is doing it right? Everybody but the United States among among developed countries. Actually, if you go to the Commonwealth Fund's uh, annual, well, it's actually a triannual evaluation of the provision of healthcare services among developed countries, the OECD, uh, uh, the mirror, mirror 
is the name of the report, and, and the last one was in 2021. The chart there will show that, as Don said, we were complacent because we are comparing ourselves with what's evaluated as the worst of the 11 countries. Uh, not We're not evaluating ourselves against the other nine that are way above us. You write that there is a common misconception, and I suppose it ties into us comparing ourselves against the Americans. The misconception that Medicare services are free. Surely Canadians really do know that their taxes pay for these services, don't they? <laughs> I, I suspect they don't, and I'm not even quite sure governments do. The premiers have been on the record for the last couple of years believing that for a very long time in the future, healthcare costs are going to grow by more than 5% a year. None of them have ever put forward a plan to fund that. And the prime minister has committed to increase the Canada health transfer. And he's also committed to give more money to mental health. And there's no plan. Not one word has been said how that's going to fund it. One presumes, like everything else of recently, the plan is just to borrow and borrow and borrow more. So maybe Canadians don't think that they're going to be taxed because we're just borrowing it. It's going to be their children and their grandchildren are, are going to. We already have high debt burdens. And if these uh, higher costs uh, increases in healthcare are going to as well be borrowed, then that too is going to be punted down the road. But there's never been a connection between the costs of the services that you take advantage of and uh, what that relates to where that money comes from. And it's never drawn back to you. You're, you're never shown. Um, if you have a hip replacement, you might read an academic article that might suggest what the cost is, uh, but you don't know. Um, as much as we don't like the United States, uh, sitting here in Arizona, I can tell you exactly what a hip replacement costs and every medical facility here that does it because they're private and they range between forty and $65,000. And I can tell you what the customer satisfaction rate for each one of those institutions is. You don't like paying for that, but it is nice to see what the cost is. <laughs> well, tell me what the benefit of knowing what the cost is. If I needed a hip replacement in Canada and I found out that it was $40,000, I'm not exactly going to say, well, well, you know what, let's not put that burden on the Canadian healthcare system. I, I'm not going to go shopping. Where's the value in knowing how much I'm actually paying for my medical attention. Well, I would use a different example, but believe me, if you need really need a hip replacement, you really need the, the hip replacement. And look at a, a, an increasingly common example where somebody presents with type 2 diabetes, and it may well be related to aspects of lifestyle. More often than not, that will be treated through a medication route. It's harder to treat it to a change in a lifestyle, and it's not particularly financially rewarding for the physician because it takes longer, it takes more visits, you can make a prescription. But in the longer run, the lifestyle change would be more secure and lasting and ultimately the lower cost. But that's not the way it presents and it's not the way the billing and the financial incentives are set up in the healthcare system. Oh, but come on, Don, you're not saying that a doctor is deciding instead of admonishing a patient for their lifestyle, I'm just going to prescribe them some drugs because it's going to make me more money is actually a thing. As much as uh, economists uh, put the emphasis on that, people don't like to accept that because we don't think that we respond to financial incentives, but I think we all respond to financial incentives to some degree. 
Did Tommy Douglas just roll over in his grave? Well, in all of Ontario, only one person entered the gerontology stream last year. Why did they do that? Uh, one of the reasons why gerontologists are at the low end of the pay of specialists, and one of the reasons at the low end of the specialists is that it, on average, a visit with an older person takes longer than with somebody else. And you want to go through all of that for that lower pay. And yeah, you could say somebody, I don't really care, I'm going to do it. But there's the evidence. We have 304 gerontologists in all of Canada. And they, on average themselves, are getting rather old. So financial or other reasons, people have decided not to go in that. We have way more pediatricians who are better paid. And yet the typical historical childhood diseases have to some degree been been addressed and yet it's the chronic conditions of the older population they're soaring so we've, we've got a mismatch of that resources and I, I yeah i think compensation and the way people are treated has a, has something to do with that that's also true for mental health professionals who are among the lowest paid of uh, those in the medical and uh, and other professions as well you write that were Medicare to be universal, portable, accessible, truly comprehensive, and administered and managed as a genuine system, as Canadians are led to believe exists, no person would go without the many kinds of care and support they need but can't afford to achieve, maintain, and restore their good health. Wouldn't the cost of making Medicare universal, portable, accessible, and truly comprehensive absolutely balloon the cost? Well, it would certainly increase it a lot. Let's take PharmaCare as an example. Um, there's a lot of estimates out there. The lowest I've seen is $9.7 billion, but that is low because it assumes there are going to be fairly high co-payments. Uh, the Hoskins report, the Federal Government Commission report, said $15 billion. The Parliamentary Budget Office is $23.7 billion. Jack Mintz has said the parliamentary budget was too optimistic and the price reduction that they assumed, and he thinks it's going to be $32.7 billion. So that, that's getting up to one-tenth the entire amount we spend. And that, that's just on one aspect. That's on, on PharmaCare. Uh, so absolutely, it would be more expensive. But in the case of PharmaCare, the way it's presented is very deceptive and, and misleading in my sense. Because if we did have a public system, a lot of people, and Duncan and I would be examples of that, would no longer be paying our private uh, contributions to a healthcare care drug plan. Like I pay it to the retired civil servants. Uh, Doug, uh, Duncan plays it through the retired Queens uh, faculty plan, and, and that would get replaced, and they're not netting that out. The overall cost in all of those estimates is actually estimated to go down, and that's the key thing. The rest of it's it's out of one pocket or it's another pocket, and it, it is an issue for public funding. It is a huge uh, optical uh, issue for governments because it would be perceived as an increase of the cost. But you also have to look at it, if it leads to better health, it should lower the cost down the road. But again, do you get governments that are willing to invest one day for a return that might not be realized for a while down the road? And then generally don't tend to do that. Yeah, not a lot of politicians plant fig trees. <laughs> uh, Michael, the other uh, aspect of your, your question, uh, will it cost a lot more? Sort of answered has been answered by Don to a degree, but you got to offset. It's, it would be more uh, expenditure on the public purse, but would be less expenditure on that thirty percent out of the private persons that we already pay. The the uh, benefit, of course, 
could be uh, would would fall mainly on those people who can't afford that approximately thousand dollars a year for either uh, supplementary health insurance or for out-of-pocket payments. And uh, the benefit of that would be that they would, in fact, take drugs, pharmacare as an example, uh, have access to the drugs earlier in their conditions. And so the probability is that the cost of their exacerbations later as a consequence of having delayed for so long taking those essential drugs would be more costly. So I don't, uh, I mean, the, the, the estimates have not really been done but I don't think the cost uh, would be that much greater. But uh, understand, it certainly would be greater for the public purse because you're covering comprehensive access to people who can't now afford to have it. So then how do we finance that increased cost? <laughs> There's a long list of options there. And, yeah. and none of them escape that is more money out of somebody's pocket. Um, certainly in the case of PharmaCare, to start with that, you could have a co-payment. Um, as, as I said, sure. people like Duncan and myself and many, many other people are already paying quite a bit. Um, why not just pay that into the government instead of the private? Uh, our biggest revenue source for all the governments is personal income taxes, but that they're already pretty high, and many people already pay over a 50% marginal income tax rate, and, and that has its own, I guess, uh, you know, the CDO's own work has suggested that the least economic cost of taxation is from a broad-based sales tax. So the closest we have to that is the GST, the HST. But you know, I just did a calculation very recently that said if the federal and provincial spending in healthcare were to grow at 6% and we were to increase pharma care, then in 15 years you'd have to double the sales tax rates. So if the provincial rate was now 8, it would have to go to 16, and the GST would have to go from 5 to 10. That would put our combined rate around 25%, which would be the highest in the world. There are some countries that have national sales tax rates at 23 or 24, but would put us right at the top of the pile. You could do it by health uh, levy. Ontario has such a thing. It's very similar to a personal income tax, and that would still also be about $5,000 increased cost in 15 years to everybody um, you can't avoid that and, and but this is where a lot of canadians and aided and embedded by their policy stories have their heads in the sand because we have all this talk swirling about uh, spending more and more money on healthcare, but not one word of how it's going to be funded and so the only reconciliation is well i guess we plan to borrow that as well but we're at federal and provincial Governments are both have about 50% net public to debt to GP ratios. Those are very high by historical standards and appear to be manageable at current interest rates, but interest rates aren't going to stay there forever. And, and, you know, point I always make, the next couple of generations are going to have to use every resource at their disposal to deal with climate change, not to arrest it because we've left it too late to do that, but mainly to adapt to it. And how are they going to handle this burden as well? And, you know, one of the most immediate one is the improvements we're seeing in government's plan to long-term care will take it from 1.3 to 2.1% of gross domestic product. And then the doubling of the 75-plus population will take it from 4.2. So in the next 15 or so years, we're, we're going to triple the share of gross domestic product just going to one thing, long-term care. So then if we attempt to mitigate the increasing cost of the existing healthcare 
system, let alone revising it. How do we optimize population health by balancing health promotion with health restoration? Well, I would say the first thing is go back to those roots and those studies, and, and including the 2009 Senate report, and focus more on the economic and social aspects of it. Um, we know the segments of the population that are in poor health, and we know with pretty high degree who is going to be in poor health and address that. And I would say, for example, we would do a, a lot more on education on First Nations Reserve, for example. That is most vulnerable segment of the population and there's lots that aren't that far behind that and we would identify that i mean just coming back to the example of the elderly uh, a main factor that forces somebody in long-term care is dementia and the most powerful thing one can do to defer if not to uh, to eliminate dementia is to deal with early hearing loss but most people wouldn't even get a hearing test. That's not something that would typically be covered and, and wouldn't get any support in getting the, the hearing aid that they would need. But hearing loss leads to social isolation and that leads to mental isolation. And so there are things that you, you could do. A frailty would be another fa factor, but we've had this alarming decline in physical activity and uh, pulling, you know, and trying to embarrass us with the activity of the 60-year-old Swede probably didn't do an awful lot, but maybe there's other things that would have to be tried on that front. So then if we don't address these key issues, do you feel that a two-tiered user fee-based system expanded beyond what we already have is simply inevitable? The simple answer, I think, is yes. Uh, I hate the idea of tiering. Uh, but uh, as Don has pointed out, I mean, we are already paying heavy, heavier than in, uh, heavy user fees, basically through our uh, personal purses. Um, and so we do have a two-tier system now. Well, it's actually, we have a multi-tier uh, system, and we don't acknowledge it. Uh, and uh, I, I do believe that, in fact, uh, user fees... For some things particularly would come. I, I can't understand the argument why they should apply to pharmaceuticals, prescribed pharmaceuticals, and not to the prescribers, the services that prescribe those pharmaceuticals. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, uh, but it does exclude uh, the poor and uh, those who's, who are challenged really to have enough money for uh, the other things that promote health, like reasonable, reasonably good food, uh, accommodation, housing, as Don said, uh, it, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure, figure out that those people who suffer most from ill health uh, are the poor. And so alleviating uh, those conditions that affect the poor uh, makes seems to me to make an awful lot more sense than uh, uh, increasing the number of resources that go into uh, ameliorating the results. I think we will probably head that way, but it won't be any comprehensive fashion. It'll be incremental. User fees are fighting words for Canadians and any politician who dare to propose them in any uh, broad-based manner would be very quickly booted out of office, but I think it will start, if indeed we do have PharmaCare, I have no doubt that there will be a co-payment scheme, simply because co-payment schemes are very common and all there. I think we'll use greater 
emphasis on co-payments for long-term care. I don't think the private or the public resources can handle this pending tripling of the cost. And once that goes in better, things will change. And public attitudes can change. I mean, I will never forget 2003 when the McGinty government was running for office in Ontario and there were a few MRI machines or private clinics whose use was paid for by OHIP. They were in the private domain and there was a political outcry and the government actually bought the machines from the private entity. Today, does anybody care? Does anybody even know? I quite often just to fool around uh, when somebody has a blood test or some diagnostic, I ask them if it got done publicly or privately and they invariably say publicly because it was done in a hospital. And I said, well, actually that blood clinic is run by the private sector and that hospital is just housed in the public sector. And they eventually said, well, I don't care. I pulled out my OHIP cart. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, the reaction is changing somewhat, but they're still not ready for them being slapped with user fees on everything. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time and insight. Thank you. You're welcome. Don Drummond is a Queen's University Stauffer Dunning Fellow and an adjunct professor of the School of Policy Studies. Duncan Sinclair is a Queen's University Professor Emeritus. Still to come from a physically distant C.D. Howe Institute, February 8th, a webinar with Stephen Del Duca, the leader of the Ontario Liberal Party, just five months before Ontarians go to the polls. On the 9th, changes in pension regulation. We'll look at what's coming and what it means with Mark Brisson of the Government of Alberta, Chris Elgar of the BC Financial Services Authority, and Mark White of the Financial Services Regulatory Authority of Ontario. And February 10th, innovation through collaboration. We'll learn about investing in continuous improvement with Bob Hamilton, the Commissioner of Revenue and CEO of the Canada Revenue Agency. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Stay safe. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.